This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, episode number 90. Do you or your teams feel powerless? Are your customers satisfied? The sad truth is many teams and customers do not and suffer. Here's the good news. You can advocate and influence change for both your team and customer service to improve your company and the bottom line. My special guest today is a New York Times bestseller, expert on organizations, and a specialist in the medical field. And hey, you think you have problems? The medical field is one of the business systems that is most seriously wounded and rigid. Listen to this. 82% of physicians feel they have little ability to change the system. Join me today and learn how this amazing CEO of a large medical leadership management group is grappling with these challenges, the solutions they have developed, and how you can use them too. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life, no matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur. Join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, and today we have the pleasure of talking to Haley Fisher-Wright, who is a nationally recognized healthcare executive physician leader, and former business consultant whose work focuses on innovation and creating cultures of excellent, excellence. Excuse me. Dr. Fisher-Wright is president and CEO of Medical Group Management Associates and is the author of Tribal Leadership, uh, which was a New York Times bestseller, and she's just written a great book called Back to Balance. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thank you very much, and please call me Haley. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Can you tell us, you? um, I've liked both your books a lot. You have such a um, wonderful philosophy on leadership and management, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you wanted people to get from your new book, Back to Balance. You bet. So, my background is very diverse, and what I mean by that is I don't think it was intentional. I've done a lot of different things, and I think like most uh, executives and career women, they've, if they've never been linear as far as doing one thing at a time. I think that's what all women share in common. Mm-hmm. So I started in practice when I was 29 years old. I, I set up my own pediatrics practice in Denver, Colorado, practiced for 19 years, but during that time, figured out probably about five to seven years into practice that the whole reason I went into medicine was to make an impact, and I wasn't going to be able to achieve that on the scale that I wanted to, seeing one patient at a time, although I really did love practice. And what I figured out early was that for me, it was business was the lever arm that was going to allow me to make impact on a much broader scale. So while I was practicing, I went to business school and got uh, my executive, uh, it's called a master's in medical management, but what it is is an MBA for physicians, 
at uh, USC. And then while I was there and getting my degree, I started working with the consulting firm, which is how I wrote the book or how I co-authored the book, Tribal Leadership. Um, and it was through being a consultant that I was able to experience many other industries outside of healthcare. So financial services, commercial real estate, oil and gas industry, uh, education. And so it was it with those experiences, not just here in the United States, but around the world and seeing how other industries wrote, gave me a very different perspective that I brought back to healthcare uh, when I became president of a large medical group and then ultimately became a hospital executive and now working in the um, in the position I have now where I'm the CEO of MGMA, which is one of the largest and one of the most established healthcare associations uh, where the AMA is for physicians and the American Hospital Association is for hospitals. MGMA is for medical practices. So it's that diversity of experience that I think really allow has allowed me to have the richness of career that I've had. And it sets the foundation for the book Back to Balance. Um, you know, I don't. I, I think I read a statistic that there's 10,000 books published a day anymore. Oh my gosh! With our to digitally print. So I think the first question I asked myself uh, before beginning to write Back to Balance is, does Does anyone in the world really need this book? What I figured out is there's so much noise in healthcare, and not. And it's not positive noise. It doesn't necessarily help people. It helps a lot of people feel like they're justified in their misery. And what I really what I was trying to achieve was something that was much um, much deeper than that. Was to basically say not that healthcare is an incredibly first of all it is probably the best career that I, I know. I mean, helping people, there's nothing better than helping people, especially at a time when they're vulnerable. And that's, to me, that's sacred. And I wanted to share the joy of doing that and how important it is. But I also wanted to give everyone a peek behind the curtain as far as, you know, what are the barriers that exist to do that and why people are so miserable, both patients and providers. So that was kind of the driving force behind writing the book. Uh, that's beautiful, and um, you know, I gave you a list of questions I was going to ask, but I, 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 I'm going to throw you a curve here because one of the stories you told was about hospital gowns, and if anybody's ever been in a hospital, they're going to love this story. Could you share a little bit about that? Sure. So, and you have to understand, I was a hospital executive, and one of the things that I always so since since I'd gone from being a practicing pediatrician to a hospital executive in a matter of about 15 minutes in the sense that I left my position practicing practice on a Friday and started being a hospital executive on a Monday. One of the things that struck me was that one of the things for tax was doing is improving the patient experience. And, and if any of your listeners can hear me, I'm using air quotes here. So the story I opened the book with, the book Back to Balance, is that when the entire the entire healthcare field has been tasked with make patient experience better, meaning not patient satisfaction, but their entire experience. So someone had the brilliant idea: let's let's make hospital gowns better. Now I've always thought about hospital gowns like like your insurance policy. 
they're there, but they never quite cover as much as you think they ought to cover. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that's how I tend to think about them, having experienced them several times. Um, and so this this was, ended up being a gold rush in healthcare. People hired consultants. People hired designers. So Diana von Fusenberg was hired to work uh, and make a better hospital gown. And believe it or not, this item that we spend about healthcare budgets about three point four trillion dollars a year. We spend about a hundred million dollars a year on hospital gowns. People just thought this was the way to make patients happier and make their entire hospital experience better. But in reality, what's happened is we're so busy focusing on the gowns that we forgot about the patients themselves. So even though we have much more beautiful hospital gowns and they're ever so much more visually appealing, the reality is that they have really um, distracted us from what really matters. And the way that I kind of open the book is to say, and I'm, glad, I'm so glad that everyone's going to look prettier <laughs> and maybe their experience is better or that their parking is closer to the hospital because those are all things that patients mention would make their experience better. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, the entire health system is going to collapse but I'm sure we'll look good, feel better, and not have to walk quite as far when all that happens. Oh, how funny. So what is the driving force in medicine today? So that's actually a loaded question. So let me let me parse that a little bit. Okay, thank you. I think, I think the driving force in healthcare today is business. Mm -hmm. And in large part because there's so much money in healthcare and because the costs are so high. It is business that's the driving force uh, behind healthcare. In medicine, as in the interaction between a physician and patient, I would say that the resist that the driving force is still the art of medicine, but the big instigator and barrier is the business of medicine. If that makes sense to the people with me. Uh, so, how how is that a barrier? Well, what happens is, so let me give you an example that, I, you know, I, I had to personally experience. When I started in practice, the expectation was for me to see about 12 to 15 patients a day. And if I was seeing 12 to 15 patients in a day, I could spend a fair amount of time with them. Now, think about this. I was seeing new mommies, young kids, teenagers who had issues. And if I had 20 to 30 minutes to spend with them, I could really do a good job as far as being a physician, talking to them, getting to know them, getting to know what was going well, what wasn't going well. And my in the medicine that I practiced, I thought was actually much better because I had that time. When I left practice 19 years later, I had 10 minutes to see patients. And in that 10 minutes, we had to cover everything. And because I had to see 30 patients so that we made enough money to pay for the office, to pay for the other doctors, to pay for the staff, to pay for the immunizations and the medicines and to keep the lights on. Um, I didn't get the opportunity to do that. So yes, I was always a good doctor in the sense that I felt like I delivered good medicine, but I can tell you when I had the time, I was really able to deliver the art of medicine and my patients really valued that and appreciated it. And by the time I left, I don't think that I was able to deliver as much of that or as much as my patients wanted. So can you give us just a thumbnail on what the art of medicine is? What does that mean? Sure. To balance. The subtitle on it is The Art, the Science, and the Business of Medicine. And what I argue in the book is that medicine is composed of 
three components. The art of medicine, which is the relationship between physicians and patients, and even though there's 6,000 years of scholarship on what is the art of medicine, simply put, I define it as the relationship, the trust, the communication between a physician or provider and patient. The business of medicine is how the money trail, how money is exchanged, and the science of medicine is how we treat. What I argue in the book, Back to Balance, is that all three of those elements must be present, but they need to do only what they need to do and nothing more. And that what's happened is business has so encroached on the relationship of the art of medicine that we've disrupted the balance and no one is happy and we are all paying for it, both financially and in health. Wow. It's, I, I mean, I think there probably isn't anyone that's listening to this program that hasn't had some experience with that. Uh, we know about the short visits with the doctor or not all the things you're talking about. <coughs> Is there any any examples of things that are starting to change? Or how do you think this is going to, what's the cure for this? Well, sure. And here's where my, um, <coughs> so the reason, so this is kind of backstory. The, my parents were watching the movie Pollyanna when uh, my mom was pregnant with me, and that starred the the film star Haley Mills, and that's actually how how I was named was from that movie. Uh-huh. So you'll have to forgive my background. I come by my optimism somewhat early. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. I I actually think things are going to change for the better, and the reason why is they are unsustainable the way they are, and and I think we all acknowledge that we can't afford to pay more. The truth is, no one is satisfied, so something has to give. Mm-hmm. Where I think that there's actually quite a bit of pa- unrecognized power is at the front line. So I think for most of us in healthcare, we've been waiting for some type of silver bullet to come through in either policy or from insurance companies to help save us from the mess that we've gotten in just to be transparent. And instead, what I advocate in the book Back to Balance is the people who are going to save us is us. It's ourselves, the providers. It's ourselves, the patients. As patients, we have rights and responsibilities as well because the relationship between providers and patients have changed. And as people in the practice, we also have rights and responsibilities. And when we start to exercise those responsibly, intelligently, start asking ourselves the right questions, we will see medicine change. And to answer your question, we are seeing that um, not across the country as in a wave necessarily, but certainly within pockets all over the country, we are seeing that happen. Can you give us an example of that? Because, you know, I, I want to know what I can do. What what's, what can I do as a patient to you bet. get better health care? You bet. Um, actually, one of my favorite questions that I get asked. You, one, one of the things that I talk a lot to audiences that are patients about is that the relationship between physicians and patients have changed. So when I was a child, the relationship of a physician, and it was traditionally a male relationship, was kind of a benevolent father figure, kind of a patronizing relationship in the sense that that physician was receptacle of all knowledge he bestowed upon you your wisdom, and you went and took his advice and did everything you said. And, and that person was a caregiver, cared for you, cared for your family. 
Mm-hmm. Well, certainly in the last 20 years, that has changed. Um, and so in the same way that the role of the physician has changed, so has the role of the patient. There's so much information out there. Um, so the role of a physician used to be as a physician, I, I was the one who owned all the knowledge. I had gone through four years of school. I'd done three years of residency. I had been a professional for, at the time I left, almost 20 years. So I was the person who owned the information. Well, let's be honest. Nowadays, you know, I have my computer up right now. You can get a tremendous amount of information, and may I add, either good or bad, up on the web. So the role of the physician is to curate that information, is to help you sort through what's valuable, what's not. As a patient, you do have a responsibility now that you never had before to be informed about your health care coverage, your insurance coverage, that you need to be your own advocate because the role of the physician being your exclusive advocate has diminished. They just don't have the time to do that. And then the other thing that I really push on um, over and over, and in fact, while we were being interviewed, my mom texted me, my dad was having a health issue, and what I texted to her is, Mom, you need to ask, ask, ask. Ask questions as a patient until it makes sense to you. And, and don't let that doctor out of your sight until you're satisfied and that it makes sense. And these are very different responsibilities than those were the responsibility 20 years ago. But just those simple things put you at a different relationship with a provider and makes you their partner as opposed to just, and I'm using air quotes here, the patient. And that's a much more empowered way to be. And since, in all fairness, we are now paying for more of our health care than we ever have before, that's probably the right place to be is to be an engaged partner in your health care. That's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about um, I, I don't know what an ear doctor is called, but I, this was a few years ago having an earache, going to this doctor, and um, she came in and she asked questions so fast, and was ready to leave the room. And I hadn't I hadn't told her what was bothering me about my ear. <laughs> she was. She was so busy asking the question, she didn't give me a chance. And I had to say, wow, I can barely catch my breath because you've asked me so many questions and there's something I wanted to tell you. And she turned around and then let me say what I needed to say to her. But that's that's a new thing to speak up and say, wait, wait, I need to say something else. Yeah, that makes a lot of it takes practice because it feels uncomfortable because it's not the traditional role. But, um, you know, what I coach patients and people on all the time is this is your new role. It feels uncomfortable. It's kind of like wearing a new shirt until you've washed it a bunch of times and it breaks in. But it's really important that you get comfortable in doing that. That that really makes sense. And I'm wondering what about the the physician? Uh, one of the things that I read in your book was that 82% of physicians feel that they have little ability to change the system. And I recently experienced this at a uh, managed healthcare with some physical therapists who were telling me about the system they were in, and they they didn't know what to do about it. How can they start? What can they start doing to make change happen? You bet. I think I think this is a 
great question, and it's the eat the elephant question. Like, how do you transform healthcare? You eat the elephant just a little bit at a time, kind of basically, um, mm-hmm. kind of using a metaphor very badly. So please forgive me. But <laughs> from a, from a position of a healthcare provider, you make impact where you can. So you take a look around. First thing I ask in my own practice is. Where are my patients the least satisfied that I could have impact with? The number one complaint I had from my own patients was, it's hard to get in to see you because you're busy, and I don't feel like you're here as, you know, the, the much time when you're here with me. You're busy, you know, it's the seven minutes till your hand is on the doorknob statistics. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I can't change all of healthcare, but I can certainly take a look at the systems in my own office how can I make it so that it's easier for patients to get in when they need to get in? And I also thought about, does every patient that needs to see me need to see me? Can I can I provide them a service so that they don't have to come in if they don't want to? And that was number one. And then number two, how do I streamline the pr- process in my office so I'm not wasting time doing things that doesn't require someone with you know, my advanced degree, like I, I always spent a lot of time faxing things. I probably didn't need to be faxing things. I could probably find someone else in my office to do it. Mm-hmm. But I was just so task-oriented, it was, you know, go to ABC. So those are the questions I asked myself. And just those small changes, actually, and I, I used to do customer satisfaction surveys in my office, dramatically changed the satisfaction of my patients in the office. Wow, interesting. And that's such a good idea. Um, In 2008, my husband, who's also a physician, also a pediatrician, uh, was was basically, had a kidney stone, everything was fine. We met with his urologist afterwards, and she said, yes, you have a at that time, not anymore. We were both young and healthy at that time, and it never even occurred to us something like that could happen. And this was before the Accountable Care Act, mm-hmm. um, where where insurance policies, particularly for small businesses, may or may not be very good. Mm-hmm. And so we went through the whole process with Mike. He was diagnosed with kidney cancer. He had surgery. He had complication related to his surgery. He got treatment for his his disease. Um, and so as we were navigating the fact that my husband, who owned a small business, who was the owner of a small business, a partial owner, um, he couldn't work, so he wasn't getting a salary because if you're not seeing patients, you're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. And um, the bills kept coming in, the bills kept coming in. And when all was said and done, this coincidental finding, we owed, we actually owed over $120,000. Uh, based on our insurance, unexpectedly. Wow. wow. And so I remember calling the hospital to say, uh, you know, both myself and my husband are on staff at your hospital. We are the doctors that service your hospital. And they said, well, if you're willing to pay in full today, we can give you a discount. Wow. And I said, we can't pay in full today. And, uh, and she said, well, you can put it on a credit card. Well, I mean, I know people have a lot of perceptions that physicians make a lot of money, but I don't have a $100,000 credit limit on my card, nor uh-huh. nor could I at 30% interest do that. So um, so what ended up happening is it helped, it, it unveiled what actually happens for most people in bankruptcy. So for 
over 70% of people that declare bankruptcy, it's medically related. Wow. And, and for 70% of people who, who uh, have bankruptcy, they are people typically above what is considered the middle class line, so above $86,000 of income a year. Wow. And so unexpectedly, never thought this would happen. We we had bills, we paid them, we had, a ha- we had a house, we paid it, we had cars. All of a sudden, we were getting collection notices. My husband couldn't work. I was, I was working part-time because I needed to take care of him. And four months after his surgery, we found ourselves well on our way to declaring bankruptcy. I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I was worried about us losing our house. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if Mike would lose his business because if we declared bankruptcy, would he be able to get credit to uh, basically buy things for his practice? Um, so it was in this, and it was, and it was honestly, I was ashamed, and I was ashamed that for all the education we had, for all the success we had had as professionals, it took one ill, one unforeseen illness, and may I add, this was also when the world was in financial crisis, mm-hmm. so any opportunity, so we couldn't get a second mortgage or anything like that. No one was giving credit in 2000, in 2007, 2008. Um, it was just the perfect storm. And, you know, I tell the story in the book that we were blessed in the sense that my mom actually broke her 401k to help us out, and we have subsequently paid them paid my parents back, but we were two physicians who were, by all measurements, very comfortable and successful. It took one illness, four months, for us to be on the path, unforeseen, to be on the path to bankruptcy. And so it's with great humility that I share that story because I think people really underestimate the role of appropriate health uh, insurance coverage and how close almost almost everybody is to having an experience like Mike, uh, like we had. Oh, I so appreciate you sharing that because you know there's got to be so many people listening to the show that have gone through this or may, may be rethinking whether they should get the health insurance or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing is I would never have thought that we would be, my husband was 40 years old at the time he was diagnosed. Right. Wow. So, yeah. Whoa. So is there – well, actually, this took a, a different turn than I was thinking. Uh, is there anything besides health insurance, is there anything that you think is, can happen to lower the cost of things? Is this, this probably too big of a question for a one-minute answer, right? <laughs> um, you know, in all fairness, I do think – and it goes back to what I said in the book, Dr. Bellows, I really talk about effective partnerships between patients and physicians – I get asked a lot of times, should physicians know the cost of things? And the answer is, in a certain, I think that physicians have a responsibility to understand that every single thing they do has an economic impact, and that needs to play in their decision-making. So it isn't just I'm going to order a million dollars worth of tests, of which some may or may not cause me to do treatment. I think that needs to be consistently within the thought process of a physician. That's where business can inform art. Because the way that I was trained, you just did you did a lot of things because you could. But when I ended practice, the thing I was always asking myself is, if I do this test, how will this change how I'm going to treat this patient? And if it isn't going to change how I treat the patient, I'm not going to do it because the patient is ultimately going to pay for it. 
So oh, I do think good, that's good. where partnership can be really helpful. And that's really beautiful. Can you talk about women in medicine? What are some of the challenges that they face? You bet. Um, you know, when I entered, so I entered into medical school in 1990. And at that time, my med school class was half women, half men. Um, and But at the time that I entered, more women went into the primary care fields. I actually went into medical school thinking I would be a neurosurgeon. But when I got exposed to neurosurgery, what I recognized is that was not the life that was going to give me a family, you know, time, time, successful time for a family uh, and for fulfillment outside of my job. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, even when I was a young woman, I thought a lot about what do I want my future to be um, and as a woman, I know that, and even before I became a pediatrician, the role of being a partner, a wife, a mom, there's just a different um, energy to it. And so where medicine probably has improved in the 20 years since uh, while I was in practice and 25 years since I um, started, um, what I have seen it improve is I think that there's, a, a tiny bit more balance, but I don't think it's balanced yet. And I, I think that the contribution that women have to make is to make that balance okay. Uh, the way that I was trained was, you know, the downside of being on call was you meant, meaning that you spent every other night in the hospital was that you missed half of the great pieces, meaning you should have been there 100% of the time. I think with women into medicine, we're starting to see a softening of that, but it's going to take a generation or two before that change occurs. I do think that medicine is a great career, and I also think that women have a unique contribution to make to the field of medicine. Our capacity for compassion, empathy, and and, and decision-making and navigating things under stress, I actually think um, make us uniquely suited to an excellent career in medicine. Um, but I'm a little biased in that regard. Yeah, I, I, most of my audience is too, so that's okay. <laughs> so you you worked in other fields, and, and now this book is about medicine. What The things you've been talking about, how would you relate that to business in general? Is there... Just lessons, no matter what business you're in, that you could get from what you've been saying. Uh, you know, you're very insightful. Um, it, it's really what um, what I'm looking at is that this is a leadership book. I don't think it's unique to exclusively healthcare. I think the principles in the book can be applied in, in any industry. The things that I talk about basically moving out of complexity into simplicity of asking. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've been in either commercial real estate or in financial services where a team gets into a challenge and, and I ask the simple question, um, did you ask your market what they want? And that then tends to reveal what the solution is. So I think that there's, there's some leadership principles here. The other thing is being comfortable in not following the herd, which I think is just a pure leadership principle um, in the sense of saying, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot in Back to Balance is uh, we aren't asking the right questions. I think leaders, regardless of what your industry, have to be comfortable 
to saying, I don't think we're asking the right questions, or even just asking, are we asking the right questions uh, if we aren't getting the results that we want? So I actually view this as a leadership book. It's a, maybe volume one is healthcare. Maybe in the future there'll be other volumes in other industries. Uh, this just happened to be the industry that I'm the most intimate with. Well, having I read a lot of leadership books, um, and it definitely is a great leadership book, and, and your stories are fantastic, by the way. Um, it's really well written. So we're just about at the end of our time. Is there... Anything that you want to leave us with? Any, anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to say? You know, I think, um, so first of all, thank you very much for the invitation uh, for the interview. Um, I think what I'd like to say is for all the negativity we hear in healthcare, there has never been a time in history that, it, that medicine has been at a higher pinnacle. The things that we can do, the illnesses that we treat, the things that were death causing illnesses to the young are now merely chronic diseases that we're going to live to old age in. And I don't, I mean, I believe heart and soul that American healthcare is the best healthcare. That being said, everybody listening has a role to play in the healthcare system, an empowered role for us to fulfill our potential and make the the potential of American healthcare live up to its promise. That's so beautiful. And thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, and I know my audience will too. Thank you so much, and goodbye. Do you want to be more confident? Do you want to be able to speak up in meetings, influence others more easily, overcome obstacles, and have the courage to take risks? Check out my 11 free confidence tips that will help you get promoted, increase your income, and influence your peers. All you need to do is go to womensleadershipsuccess.com and click the 11 free confidence tips graphic on the sidebar and sign up on the page that opens up. Also, I really want to hear from you. Let me know your top questions and comments on how to get promoted, how to develop your leadership ability, your career development, or anything else that you'd like to ask or share. Just go to the bottom of this show's webpage and submit your questions or comments in the box. I'll get back to you soon. And thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brom, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrom.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.